You good? Need a break or anything? Bathroom? No, I'm great. Okay, we'll continue on. You ready? Yeah, I'm good. Ann? Hold on. My wife just opened the door. What's up? Are you taking off for photos soon? Okay. Hey, Ann? I got dinner covered, okay? Okay. I love you, Ann. Yeah, you have to do the you have to do the home maintenance stuff. That's always the priority, as you well know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It never ends. We just had our AC replaced, so I know how you feel. Wait a minute, your wife's? No, no, I'm talking about home maintenance, taking care of your wife. Oh yeah, happy wife, happy life. Right. I get that. Too. AC is trivial. That that can be fixed anytime. But if your wife isn't happy, yeah. life is not good. <laughs> you gotta. You, that's right. That's old men understand that. You know, happy wife, happy life, right? Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and the content expressed disturbing and or objectionable. Hello everyone again, this is Dr. Todd Fredericks, DO, Associate Professor of Family Medicine at the, actually I'm an Associate Professor of Primary Care. I was an Assistant Professor of Family Medicine, then I became an Associate Professor of Family Medicine, and suddenly we changed the department to Primary Care because we wanted to be inclusive of the pediatricians. And, um, and now I'm an Associate Professor of Primary Care at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. And we have the pleasure of continuing our conversation with Dr. Neil Copeland, who is a pediatrician and a pediatric hospitalist in Charleston, West Virginia. And uh, hello, Neil. Hi, how you doing? I'm fine. I am I'm living large in the age of the Rona. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I, I have, as you well know, Neil, because you're part of this whole thing too, the Rona has sucked up considerable amounts of bandwidth in our lives, um, both on the civilian side and the military side. So every day just flies by, and you know, I always feel like I'm, I haven't gotten done what I needed to get done. I just feel like I'm in a constant state of behind. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, coronavirus has been uh, life-altering, to say the least. Yeah, like, well, I mean, it's unprecedented in any living person's memory or lifetime, and it's certainly unprecedented because... In 1918, there was no vaccine coming, and you know there was there was no understanding of there was no understanding of PPE. People knew about masks and droplets, but they didn't have the level of sophistication that we do, where we can just you know look at recombinant DNA, you know technologies and all this other stuff. So it, that's added a level of sophistication and uncertainty, I think, for people because they know more, and maybe it's they know more about what's not possible, uh, and that's sobering too sometimes, you know. I don't know about you, Neil, yeah, but totally I was just looking at CDC's, um, what is it called? Operation, the government's operation towards rapid vaccine development. I don't know. It's not hypermile. That's a, that's like their hyperloop. That's like an Elon Musk thing. But there's an actual CDC website where you can look at what the government's timeline was to basically take a three to five year process of vaccine development and turn it into 14 months. It was like, holy cow. And it was very, you know, it was very deliberate right? Like these are our stages that we're going through. And so, I mean, if they'd had that in 1918, maybe we wouldn't have lost 50 million people. I don't know. It was, but it was, it, it's, it's interesting. You learn stuff new every day about this disease and how it affects people. Okay. So let's get back to pediatrics though. We'll talk about Corona later. How, Neil, can a student preparing to rotate with you best prepare for an experience in pediatrics? So 
What are the things you've noticed that students are deficient in when they show up that keep them from maximizing their learning when they're on your service? Sure, sure. So I think one of the things that, especially earlier in your third year, so third year for traditional medical students where they enter into the, they go from the classroom more to the clinical aspect of care. And uh, what I see maybe more early on in students as they try to learn to study in this new environment is maybe picking too many resources. In pediatric, there are great resources. Uh, I can plug a few. There's a blueprint for pediatrics. There's first aid for pediatrics. There's case files. There's uh, questions that you can take. Um, I find the students that really understand how to study for themselves and they've learned that their first two years to kind of lean on those same tried and true skills, pick one good general pediatric resource and then spend some time reviewing your common, uh, maybe the common uh, condition. It's some of that stuff's hard to do preemptively because you read 10, 12, 15 topics and then you spend all day seeing ear infections. So what I really recommend is finding one good resource and then going into it with an aggressive schedule to read what you saw that day. I think it's really important if you see a kid with acutitis media or gastroenteritis or osteomyelitis or asthma that you spend some time that evening reading about it because it helps you kind of compartmentalize that experience and learn from it and then recall becomes a lot better. Uh, but then stick to a study plan. Uh, PEDS is a unique beast and it's, there's OB involved. There's essentially critical care medicine. So you're, it's surgery and internal medicine and OB and then pharmacology all wrapped up into its own little nugget. So it can be challenging if you try to wait till the last minute to start going through some of those review books. So pick one early, set a really consistent schedule, and then read about the patients you see because common things are common and common things are tested on also. Yeah. Neil, we talked about in the last episode this sort of tendency for clinicians to undertreat conditions. And I, as a, as a, as a, a person, I would I think of myself as a sinusitis, sinusitis veteran, okay, because I live in, in Southeast Ohio in Appalachia, and I spent a good part of my life as an ER guy and an urgent care guy and a family practice guy treating sinusitis. And so I did look up drug dosages, and I did look up what was indicated and what was not, right? So I have this persistent argument where people tell me, well, I, might, I needed antibiotics for my sinusitis, and I said, Actually, you probably didn't. And they get all mad at me because the guidelines for adults are basically an uncomplicated sinusitis. It's probably viral, right? So the, yeah. my, my point is on all that is, do you have, because I had a, one of my psychiatric friend, friends recently tell me they hated Hippocrates because it was always wrong with psych meds. Do you have a preferred reference for medications to ter, for students to turn to when they want to look at drug dosages, that sort of thing, if they're looking at a pediatric population on that rotation and trying to figure out, well, what is the best way? I mean, Sanford Guide always comes to mind, but what what would what would that resource be, a name or two that someone could look at and try to find if, before they show up so that they are informed? Yeah, so we have a book that we, it's kind of our Bible as far as for most of the drugs that we use pretty in, in, commonly in the pediatric populations called Harriet Lane. Mm -hmm. It's by John Hopkins Hospital, and it's the Harriet Lane. I think it's in its 22nd or 23rd edition, so it's commonly reviewed. Now, of course, you get a really wonderful electronic copy, so you can keep your formulary on your phone, and you don't have to carry the book around like I did. It's heavy uh, in your white coat. Uh, and every pediatrician, essentially, if you walk into a pediatrician's office, there's a good chance you're going to find it on their desk. Uh, not only does it tell you the dosages, it tells you when it should be high-dose amoxicillin or low-dose and why. It tells you uh, contraindications, and in, in, in pediatrics, you can get the drugs like Bactrim, which is 
soften the doxazole and trimethoprene. It tells you which component you dose off of because that can be confusing. Mm-hmm. And it really is a great resource that we all feel really comfortable using. Now, if you're in NICU medicine, then Lexicom or something else is going to be really more useful in kids that are itty-bitty. But for your general uh, practitioner or your pediatrician, uh, John Hopkins, Harriet Lane um, handbook is the way to go. Awesome. One, so we talked a little bit about this before in terms of the current developments, but what are the future developments in pediatrics that are coming up that, you know, either technologies or, or therapies that you've seen that are emerging that aren't quite here yet that you know are going to change the field of pediatrics? Yeah, so that's Maybe genomics, really I don't I think the new realm of things is, is genetics, mm-hmm. and we're starting to get to the point to where you know you can now order a test that uh, I'm not putting necessarily any stock behind this, and I also own no stock in these companies. But you know, there's a lot of uh, pediatric psychiatrists that will run tests on the children to see what their kind of genes are and what type of cellular uh, markers they have to help them predict the use of certain types of psychotic medications, SSRIs. Uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or uh, which ADHD medication will work the best. Also, we're getting really good for kids with maybe rare or congenital anomalies uh, of knowing what genes do what. So I think in pediatrics, the ever marching forward understanding of our genome and how that correlates to disease uh, will really change a lot of things. We've seen a lot of promise potentially in genetic treatment for um, for cystic fibrosis, where we can really extend a child's life in significant quality of life well beyond what we're traditionally seeing. So much so, we've gotten so good at treating actually cystic fibrosis that what traditionally used to be a pediatric pulmonology disease because the children never really live long enough to transition and see enough adult pulmonologists to get them fully competent. We're now having to train adult pulmonologists to see cystic fibrosis because now they're living into their 40s and 50s and 60s where they used to making it in their late 20s, early 30s. So I'd say genetics is the new realm um, in, in pediatrics. Yeah. You know, it's funny to me about that too, John, is I have a, a, we have a family friend who has a child that has cystic fibrosis. And so uh, her father, who unfortunately is deceased now, spent his a good chunk of his life doing research on cystic fibrosis. And I learned that cystic fibrosis was a so-called orphan disease because there just weren't enough people with it to warrant major funding. And so the CF Foundation raises almost all the money that goes into CF research. And, and what's amazing about that is, to me, is that a disease that affects, I think it's something like 30, 35,000 people in the United States have CF. I think that's the number. I've heard that quoted before. But it's, it doesn't sound like a trivial number, but it's so small that it just doesn't garner the attention that more concerning diseases do in terms of total population. And yet you mentioned that disease because the advances, like you say, have been so incredible um, in terms of, I mean, when I went through medical school 25 years ago, CF was a death sentence in your 20s to 30s. You just didn't survive. And now there's people with CF yeah. that are in their 40s. And, still, and they're having babies, they're staying healthy enough to have kids, which you didn't yeah. necessarily see before either because of weight issues. And um, again, you know, going from the older days of just trying to keep their lungs clear enough of, you know, dehydrated secretions to, uh, to now medications that can get them off a lot of their, their control of medications. I mean, it's really, uh, a new realm where you're seeing a lot of positive 
positive, positive research and outcome uh, because it is a really hard disease. I think it's right up there. There's several diseases that really make me sad. Cystic fibrosis is one of them because the the therapy and the daily requirements for the child is mm. so much with, you know, you have your chest PT and your medications and your inhalers. I mean, your day's consumed mm-hmm. with, mm-hmm. with treatment for that disease and you're scared to get sick with other things. And we also have the same thing for type 1 diabetes. It's another disease that I think is just really hard for family, for kids to wrap their head around because now all of a sudden, every time they want to eat, they got to check their sugar and they got to give themselves needles and have to do that for so long before you can get a pump. Um, but then when you get a pump, average kids gain 15, 20 pounds on a pump because now they're not not eating because they don't have to necessarily check their sugar because they have a you know a different way of giving themselves insulin. So uh, those are two real hard diseases that I have because, you know, we're not quite there yet in making it more curative, though. What, yeah. Type 1 diabetes is another realm where we're hopefully making pumps that will replace um, the pancreas and are getting so good with your kind of extracellular glucose monitoring systems that um, that that's another realm where I think we're really on the cusp of dramatically changing some kids' lives. So now that's the question, right? So, you know, obviously genetics and genetic engineering are extremely expensive things usually. Do you foresee, because uh, you mentioned, again, you mentioned some interesting diseases. OU has a big investment in diabetes, especially in adults. Do you foresee that it may just be that, look, the, the cost of actually developing a genetic therapy that would cure diabetes is not, the, the cost of that is prohibitive against the efficiency of modern continuous glucose monitoring and pumps. Do you see that? Or is it still always going to be the goal to, hey, we can insert a gene in, replace what you're missing, you get your beta cells working again, and you don't ever have to have a pump or monitoring or anything? What do you, what do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, no, you know, I haven't necessarily read uh, all the research, but I think stem cells probably would be one of the better places for type 1 diabetes research because once your beta cells burn out and they kind of are gone uh, through an auto uh, immune kind of condition, you need to be able to replace those in other places. So I think the goal, obviously, is auto recreating your own uh, cells that can auto-regulate based off your, your body's natural hormones would be the best because then you can really react uh, quickly. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, pumps now are just so much different than they were. I mean, I, I see kids come in with a little, you know, uh, continuous glucose monitor on and it's on their cell phone and it's alarming and it's trying to be predictive on where they're going to go so they know when they need to eat a snack or when they need to bolus with insulin. So um, I think technology is doing a great job. They want to make those to where they're insertable, where you can actually potentially have them inside the body. Um, and, uh, and again, I'm not quite sure. I guess you'd have a little reservoir that you'd replace the insulin with, but they're mm-hmm. looking at a lot of different things to limit kind of the you know, I have to take my pump off. Now I've got to worry about my sugar while I'm swimming, et cetera. And it is just kind of a cool area. I think it's, again, technology is now probably keeping up with what we need to be doing mm-hmm. and making advancements in those realms uh, significant. It is, it is truly a brave new world because as a flight surgeon, I come from the time when if you were a diabetic, you could forget ever flying an airplane. And now we have commercial airline pilots that fly around with diabetes but they use a pump and indwelling insulin monitoring. And because of that, they have to have a fairly rigorous monitoring schedule, but they're able to have their careers in aviation. It's not a, a career ending thing. And I've seen some incredible things with multi-system patients who have multi-organ transplants, still have diabetes, and they're living normal lives because of the sophistication of diabetes management today. And what really gets me, and you see it every day, but I see it occasionally, is that little kid who's basically like five and they know how to run their pumps. 
And I'm like, holy cow, yeah. but they're computer savvy. The downside of this, and I've talked to a couple of kids about this over the years, is they're, the, the big, big sister is always there because there's always the mother who's getting the alarms on her cell phone too when her kids are at school. And then she's calling the kids saying, are you okay? Are you doing okay? So it's the yeah. technology is the downside, which is the kid can't live their life because the mom is constantly monitoring their sugar too now, which is kind of interesting to watch. But that is amazing, isn't it? Just where that's come in the last 20 yeah. years. Unbelievable. Yeah, you know, five, six years ago it was bringing your handwritten log of sugars and now they can download their monitor even before their appointment. Um, and or some, some EHRs really get regular updates from the patient. So it is it is a really nice way to see technology improving the outcomes of, of, of a condition for sure. Yeah. Uh, what does the pediatrician in five to ten years in ten years look like, you think? What do you what do you think will be what do you think will be solved or what do you think will be a new challenge that we weren't ever considering? Yeah, you know, I think in pediatrics they're adding, for instance, for the pediatric rotation, uh, there's a request to add mental health as a required rotation. I think you're going to see a general pediatrician continuing to pick up more for specialties that we lack uh, a lot of access to. So we still need a lot of pediatric and adolescent psychiatrists uh, where we don't have enough pediatric pulmonologists. We don't have enough um, pediatric endocrinologists. So I think they're going to be the uh, more sophistication of general pediatricians managing things that have classically been managed by a specialist and pushing down some of that basic management into the realm of uh, the generals. Now, with that being said, something I think family medicine docs do a lot. I think you all probably treat more basic diabetes and insulin management, and you don't send everyone to an endocrinologist. But for the most part, endocrinologists manage that in the pediatric realm. So mm -hmm. we're going to just expand what we do uh, so we can streamline and make the specialists that we do have um, give them the most time for the sickest and the highest need patients. Yeah, we'll get into sick in the third segment. We'll talk about sick, sick patients. Uh, and so we might touch on that, on that too. Um, do you see the residency getting longer? No, I think it's going to continue to be a three-year residency. Now, with that being said, the hospitalist track adds a new fellowship. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know if we'll have any more specific fellowships added. I haven't seen anything on the radar, uh, for that yet. Um, but that does add some time. You know, most general pediatricians like the idea of being able to be a hospitalist, uh, without any training. And this new subspecialty will make individuals who don't get that additional training and spend those additional years in, an, in a residency or fellowship make them less competitive for some of those jobs. It won't be a no for sure because you won't have enough in the beginning, but it'll make it a little bit harder, especially for your educational institutions. They're going to be looking for that board certification. So I think it'll continue to be a three-year residency, and I think our, our fellowships will continue to pop up in areas of need. I, I would not be surprised if there was a a more specific pediatric mental health outside of the psychiatry realm option open up. We already have behavioral and developmental um, uh, that's set up, and we already have adolescent, which tends to do a lot of mental health. So um, I think there may be other avenues. Substance abuse is another realm that I think um, in pediatric substance abuse that they might eventually want to make a, a clinical fellowship that might turn into board certification in the future. So I think there are realms of pediatric care that we just didn't have to deal with as much because there's just a, such a greater understanding of depression and in pediatric populations and transgender and how that affects kids and uh, substance abuse in children has grown significantly. So uh, prompting us to react to that and sometimes react to that in a more formalized education capacity. Yeah. You know, Neil, I'm, I'm t pretty much telling every family 
practice resident or student interested in family practice to do a fellowship now. And I think you guys are seeing something similar to what we've seen with the encroachment of the mid-levels, right? Which is if you have a person in my, this is me, the nervous Nelly. If I have a person that can do 95% of what I do for 95% of the people that I take care of, but comes at a, a substantially lower cost than I do. Well, if the business bean counter is, is, is looking at the numbers, they're going to look for efficiencies in costs and pick them. And I know a, a lot of young people now are picking either uh, physician assistant tracks or nurse practitioner tracks because they look at the total time commitment to become a physician. And they say, well, I can do the bulk of what a physician does, in some cases practice independently, but I don't have the time commitment, the cost, et cetera. And so I've told family physicians, I said, look, it, you need to do a, a hospitalist fellowship or pre-hospitalist fellowship or an ER fellowship. You need to get out there and do additional training that distinguishes you so that you cannot be easily replaced. And it sounds like something similar. I would just say to young people listening, these always come with grandfathers because what Dr. Copeland's saying is the, the reality is you can't just replace all the practicing inpatient pediatricians who didn't do fellowships with these newly minted fellowship trained pediatricians. It takes a generation to do that basically. So, but over time, they'll stop accepting the grandfathered case of, yeah, you, by OJT over 30, 40 years of practice, you're qualified to be an inpatient and they'll start requiring those credentials. I mean, that's typically what happens, right? You can't work in a big ER yeah. now unless you're a board certified ER doctor, unless you've got a decades of ER experience. And eventually it'll just be there. Yeah, be so 2008, yeah, 2018 was the last year you could graduate from general pediatrics mm -hmm. and then get enough time in practicing as a hospitalist and get grandfathered in without completing a, a course. So we'll be approaching, I believe it's the twenty. 23 or 24 test. It's the last test that you're going to be able to certify under the grandfather clause. So we'll, yeah. in less than 10 years, that window will be closed for practicing pediatricians. I would say that most pediatricians right now that are doing it mm -hmm. uh, have, uh, have, have got grandfathered in and took that test because we had like maybe 2,200, 1,800 people take it the first year uh, and pass. So I think we're already kind of saturated the grandfathered potential of all people uh, mm -hmm. into that course. So now it'll be how many people choose to um, make that really financial sacrifice. You know, hospitals don't necessarily get paid more than general pediatricians. Actually, in the private realm, if you have a really well-run practice, you can generate a lot of revenue because your revenue comes from how many patients you see, and you can see a lot, depending on how many you want to see. So you can really make good money as a general pediatrician. Um, and so, you know, making that extra two or three years in fellowship pay, as fellow pay, compared to... $230,000 as a general pediatrician, you might not ever be able to overcome that barrier or that lack of income throughout your career. So it really is a labor of love and a decision of love, not unlike many family docs have to make when they decide on a fellowship also. Yeah. You know, though, I would tell you though, I, I always, students that come up to me like that, we, we, unfortunately we're a primary care oriented school, but for several years we had these flyers that basically said, what do people earn right in the entryway? Right. And of course it highlighted the fact that pediatricians and family doctors were at the lower end of the pay scale and students that come in and say, well, I, you know, I think I'm going to go into a surgical specialty because I can make a lot more money. And I say, wait a minute, do you know what the average person in this country makes? I mean, no matter how you slice it, if you're a conscientious, reasonably hardworking physician, family physician, pediatrician, uh, and the reason why we mention these for people listening is that traditionally pediatricians and family medicine have vied for the lowest paid 
of the of the medical professionals. That said, you don't live an uncomfortable life. I mean, if you're conscientious and you're thoughtful and you're a good doctor about what you do and you are reasonably hardworking, you'll make a pretty darn good living. Um, and all the other thing I'd say too, Neil, is you could be a neurosurgeon and make a million, a half a million to a million a year, but you're going to spend 13 years of your life after medical school doing your trade with fellowships and residency training. And the same thing's going to be with a radiation mm-hmm. onc or any of those guys. I mean, those guys who are in the those echelons of, of earnings they spend a lot of time beyond medical school learning how to do that stuff uh, and delay for years. And it, the intensity of their life is just off the charts. Like I would not want that level of stress and pressure. I, I couldn't imagine. I don't know about you, but I don't, I mean, neurosurgery, that is a rough yeah. cardiothoracic surgery. That's another one that you, you talk about labor of love. You have to really want to do that to do it. It's not about the money at some point. You're, you're just, just passionate about, doing that stuff. Cause it's high, high stakes stuff. I have a lot of respect for those people. I, yeah. I, would, I think I've told a story before I was talking to a cardiothoracic guy about a consult with a patient and he sounded funny on the phone. I said, what's going on? And he said, you know, I had to take, I, 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 I couldn't get a patient off the table today. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, well, you know, I mean, I couldn't get his heart restarted. I was like, what? He goes, yeah. I said, how often does that happen? He goes, yeah, we're busy probably once every month to two months. I go, so you go and consent the person who's talking to you. Tell them, hey, we're going to get you through this. We're going to get you a new heart, blah, 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 blah. And then you have to go out and you have to tell their family that you couldn't get their heart started and you pronounce them dead. And he goes, yep. Yeah. And I'm like, you have to be a special breed of cat to put up with that for 30 years and, and just realize that's just part of the deal. Sometimes you can't get the sick heart restarted. And I'm like, man, I'm glad you're you. I don't want that job. That, that to me would just be crushing. And yet they, they somehow do it and they, they can put that in perspective. It's, and we may talk about that a little bit yeah. in, in, in the last segment we're going to do on this, which is about inpatient pediatrics and super sick kids. But Neil, tell me what the worst yeah, day. I think, oh, you know, just, well, hold on. But as far as deciding your best job, and this is advice I, t- I tend to give students is, you know, going into something kind of like what you said, based off money is probably going to set you up for. Uh, at least increase risk of burnout. Even mm-hmm. though I think family medicine docs and pediatricians make on the lower end of the pay scale, the classes are much higher on our rate of job satisfaction and happiness. And I think it's most people who go into primary care do it because they want to and they love it and they understand what they're getting into. They don't just fall into it. So mm-hmm. I think Confucius said, choose a job you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life. And I think find what you love. Don't think about the money because like you said, we all make enough to be happy. Find out what you really love it really makes you happy. And then your job just feels great. That, that's success. It's not a paycheck. It's how happy you are and the difference that you can make. Yes. And uh, that's what your first, you know, through the first kind of months of your third year is really wrapping your head around your rotations and just finding out what clicks can without you, the idea of lifestyle so much. Can you see purpose in what you do? That's the whole point. Because if you walk out every day and you say, I don't know what I did today, then that's just crushing. <laughs> you will not be yeah. a happy doctor, yeah. right? I mean, you will not. So Neil, tell me about the worst day in your practice. What, what looks like, what's the worst day about being a pediatrician? You know, I think in pediatrics, it is a couple things. I think it's going to be hard diagnoses, telling a parent that their, their child has, you know, cancer. That's a bad day for anyone. Um, telling their child, uh, having a discussion, discovering like non-accidental trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, examining a kid, it might be coming in for, oh, I think their belly's hurt. They, they won't stop crying. And then you find on x-ray multiple broken ribs, you know, broken long bones, mm-hmm. uh, maybe uh, retinal hemorrhage. I mean, just lots of 
of evidence that this child is in a really unsafe um, unsafe environment. And then there's the kids that maybe aren't physically harmed, but they're mentally harmed or neglected. They come in very malnourished, very poorly taken care of. Um, those are the hard days. I mean, we all love children. You know, I don't think there's anyone that walks around and really can see a child and say, wow, I really don't like that person. Um, but um, to see one hurt or to see one really taken out or at least diagnosed with a really prolonged disease is a challenging day. And there is some satisfaction in guiding that child to a better environment or guiding that child through treatment and getting them care. But the initial discussion, the initial identification, just really acknowledging that, wow, that kid has been hurting for a long time based off his injuries. Uh, it's, it's hard not to feel, uh, feel something in those moments and, and have to process through that. How do you steal yourself for that, Neil? I mean, you obviously, I mean, I think about, because of course, Nationwide Children's Hospital, you've got a women and children in Charleston, and then of course, Nationwide's a city into of itself in, in Columbus. I, I, it's filled with pediatricians. How do pediatricians deal with that? Because they see that, they see the emotionally, physically, sexually abused, neglected child far more frequently than the rest of us. What is it you do? And, and just again, as a guy who practiced emergency medicine for, Oh, well over a decade. Um, these things, these sorts of things, to to encounter an abused child would just almost bring you to can almost bring you to prejudiced violence. You know, how do pediatricians wrap their head around that and and stay stay sane? What is it you do to steal yourself, or that would be the advice you give to a resident to say, look, this is something you're just going to encounter. This is how you keep from going insane over the the the, the inability to immediately fix it or take out vengeance on behalf of the child, what is it you do to, to deal with that? Yeah. So I think one of the things that I rely on and, and teach my residents and students is, you know, we're mandatory reporters. And I like to say that because uh, it's important to know that when you have a suspicion, you have to report it, but it also takes all the pressure off the table. You don't get to tell the parent, I think you're a bad person. I've prejudged you. Um, and some people, some of these people might be people that's been a patient in your clinic for a long time. Um, you basically take some of the pressure off the table and listen, I see these things. These are consistent with potential abuse and I'm mandated to report that. Mm. Having that initial conversation sometimes is the hardest. How do I tell a parent? How do I look at this mom and say, someone's abusing your child without knowing who? The second thing is we're not necessarily investigator. We're the treater. And I really like that aspect. I, I, I do like that I can kind of disconnect from who did it. Is it safe for this kid to be in the room? And I really like to look at them and say, it's not my job necessarily to decide where the kid goes home, who the kid goes home with, and who did it. Well, my job is to identify what's wrong with your child and treat that condition and give them a safe environment. And then you can almost solely go into, is it contacting CPS? Is it safe for the, the caregivers to be in the room with the child? Is it safe for them to go home? What are the injuries? Documenting how those injuries uh, were reported to you. And is it, is that story consistent with how that injury could have happened? Because that's how we catch most actual abuse is. It's not that the kid has a broken bone. It's that the way the parents say that it happened is no way inconsistent with how that injury could have happened based off of the fracture, et cetera. So you go into a little scientist and you go into the medicine and you just get the document, what you see, what you hear, and pathophysiology and uh, basically mechanism injury documenting that to ensure that you have a really concise document that can protect that child moving forward because none of this stuff gets done in one day, even if the police come, even if the police make arrests that day, none of it's taken care of in a day. These are This is a month-long process with CPS and lawyers and judges involved. And the better you wrap your head around the situation, you collect facts, 
document those facts, and then you give your opinion on what's the best for the health of the child in that situation. Um, it really steals you from feeling like you need to be the investigator, you need to be the police officer, you need to be CPS, and you need to try to make some of those decisions because that's where it gets the hardest. Now, sometimes you do need to be the advocate, though. I've been times where I felt like a child was not safe to go home and the safety plan in place was it correct, and you're making calls to a CPS supervisor. So your job isn't done just because someone else is invited into the care. You still have to be a great advocate for the child. Um, but for the most part, CPS is well-seasoned in this also, and they want to know what you think, and you come up with a plan you feel comfortable with. But I think, though, knowing that it's always going to be a really long, drawn-out process, knowing that really the health of this child moving forward is really dependent on, on, on what you write and what you can collect over the next one or two days, it really helps you power through the initial struggle. It's also never wrong to want to hold the child or feed the child or buy the child things. I mean, a lot of pediatricians end up, if they're in a hospital, they'll, toys will start to show up and clothes will start to show up. Uh, et cetera. And that's a way to give a little bit of love back. And, and that's great too. Yeah. One of the ways we, we deal with it. So the, the first part is dispassionate objectivity. It's just being the best, most meticulous evaluator and documenter of that child's status. And the second is just being a good human being and just looking after them as a, yeah. as a safe adult that wants to look after them. That's awesome. Yeah. So let's end this thing on the best day of your practice. What is it that encourages you professionally? What is the thing that really makes you feel like this is exactly what I, this is the best day of, of my practice? What is that? Yeah, the, you know, there's lots of great days. It could be having a child gain weight and get back to birth weight for a mom that wants to do exclusive breastfeeding and you're able to encourage her and uh, motivate her and give her the kind of st- you know, medical strength that she needs to, to continue. Uh, that's a very frequent conversation and actually a great, great win to increase our breastfeeding rates. It could be the kid that um, was really sick in the hospital and had RSV or had a bad asthma attack and you see him in your follow-up clinic and he's doing really great. Um, it even could be those abuse kids that you get to see back thriving coming in with a loving caregiver. I mean, we've recently had one that, uh, that went home and on follow-up was amazing and it really was thriving. So, I think seeing the successes when you have to treat is really awesome. But then just sometimes it's a day of normalcy. And, and you know what this is like in a busy day where every patient comes in and they don't have a lot of other complaints and they're all just doing really well. And you just get a day of saying, wow, like these kids are doing awesome and their immunizations are up to date and they're healthy and they have no complaints and there's nothing more to do than just continue to check in with them. So a day of healthy is also a really great day. Yeah, when you're a young doctor, at least for me, it was that I was fascinated by uh, aggressive intervention. Like, okay, this is doing something. I think a lot of young medical students feel this, that if I don't put a central line in someone, then I'm just not doing what I should be doing. And the last statement you made, John, is absolutely true. As an older physician, I'm like, I'll just take a boring day. If, If everybody's healthy, that means no one had a bad day. That means no one's getting their neck cranked over so I can shove a you know piece of plastic into a vein or an artery. Uh, and um, I don't have to put a chest tube in someone. I don't have to put an endotracheal tube in someone. I'm okay with that. If, if it's just, hey, I'm, my blood pressure is great and can I have a refill? And I say, yep, and see you in six months and keep doing everything you're doing. Those days I, I do yearn for. And the older I get, the more I yearn for them. And I've told people, I like being like the firefighter. I, I want to wash the trucks. I want to make sure I've worked out and done my training. And then I want to sit in a chair and wave at the public going by and watch them have a great day. 
I, I do not want yeah. to be going to the fire. I really don't. I want to be prepared to do it, but I don't want to have to do it because that means someone's had a bad day and I don't want that. So it's pretty weird, isn't it? How that changes over time. I think it, it's weird how it changes in that mentality it, it, again. And it's just knowing all the places that you really are successful. I think people really want that one or 2% of our encounters, which is the really scary encounters to kind of quantify how successful they are. And they just totally ignore the 99% of the things they're doing awesome and the great change they've helped people with. And they don't take the time to just say, I'm actually doing great on the little victories, which actually are huge victories, especially when you're thinking of primary prevention. I think that's a great way to end this segment. Uh, Neil, you're willing to do one last one with me about inpatient and sick kids? Yeah, sure. Okay. So with that, we'll conclude the second segment with uh, Neil Copeland, MD, uh, pediatrician. And um, again, for those of you who are interested, you can always contact us. You just follow the disclaimer in the outro, and it'll tell you where to go or look at the show notes. And I'll put in any references, of course, go to the show notes and just look at them, and there will be hyperlinks to them, and you can go look stuff up and um, and, and get uh, reference sources so that uh, you can continue your learning about this as we go. And with that, I'll wish you the best of days, and uh, we'll get uh, you again in a week and you can listen to the last part of the series. So thank you very much. Take care. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science as part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of the Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion, so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. This episode of Rotations was produced by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we sometimes pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators. You must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by tweeting us at Medical Cinema for Todd, at Prof Plow for Brian, Nisarg Bakshi for Nisarg Bakshi, and at Rotations PCAST, or by visiting MediaMedicine.com slash Rotations. Check us out on Facebook at Media and Medicine. And finally, from me, Todd Fredericks, you can also send me a message through my Facebook page at TR Fredericks. But please, I have a sensitive feelings, so embrace your humanity. Thank you.